0: Well, good morning again. Thank you for the privilege of hosting this regional. Uh, we've been able to do it a few times uh, since my time here at Edgewood Bible Church and my first time here as pastor, so it's been a, a joy for us and a privilege for us to be able to do that here again. But here we are here in the month of March and baseball season is in full swing, right? Amen. Pun intended. It's the time of year where all the Seattle fans emerge from their cave where they've hid for the last four months and they begin their journey in believing that this, in fact, is the year they're going to win. I've been saying that for 30 years as a Detroit Tigers fan, so I know. <laughs> Everybody loves baseball, right? The sights, the sounds, the smells of attending a game. We love baseball, and, and, and in baseball, one of the most feared batting positions in the lineup is the number four. This is the cleanup hitter. This is the guy that is supposed to drive in the runs. He brings home all of the guys that are on base. Because if you have a good lineup in baseball, the bases should be full by the number four hitter. Here's where I am today. The bases are full. I'm the number four hitter, I didn't choose that, the manager did. And we'll see if this manager is gonna make it past the day. Uh, I've got my work cut out for me because the other men have served us well uh, these last few days. In And bringing God's word to us, serving us. And I appreciate uh, you men and your diligence in studying God's word and presenting it to us. And I'm praying that what I have to share this morning will will help you uh, and be helpful in your ministry. A number of years ago, Time Magazine had an article uh, entitled The 25 Most Influential People in America. And as you read the article, you noticed that they made a a distinction between influential people and powerful people. In fact, the quote said, these are not necessarily the most powerful people, but they're the most influential. And I believe it's a helpful distinction. Let me put it in my own words. Power changes people from the outside in. Influence changes people from the inside out. If we say that you have power, we mean that you have some clout in some way, some either money or maybe you have the government behind you. You have a course of force to bring another person to change their behavior. And and they will change because they have to, not necessarily because they want to. But influence is a whole other ballgame. With influence, you're you're targeting their insides, what drives them. You're looking at their heart and their mind. You're looking for them to change from the inside. And so people change because they want to, not because they're, they're forced to. Now, by any yardstick, the Apostle Paul was one of the most influential people in the history of the world. Most definitely in the top 25, probably in the top 10. But he didn't have any power. He didn't have money. He didn't have the government behind him. Through it all and through his ministry, people were changed from the inside out. You know, when he came to every town, every city, every province in the Mediterranean, he always came with a message. He brought the power, and it wasn't in Paul. It was the gospel. And this gospel had absolutely no affinity with any particular group or race or culture that he was addressing. He said himself that the gospel was offense to the Jews and is a joke, it's ludicrous to the Greeks. And Paul goes into town after town with no power, with an unpalatable message. And those he preached to, whether Jew or Greek or highly religious or fully secular, they all hated the gospel. And time after time, the gospel won. And Paul goes into town with the message and people are transformed. People are changed. Hundreds, even thousands, I'm sure. How could this be? How is it possible that so many people are changed? Once serving themselves, once serving the God of this age, of this world, and now serving the, the living God. Well, you know and I know it's through the power of the gospel. He knew the power was in what God had done and what God would do. And all he needed to do was just release it. Just let it go. Give it. So my desire and my task this morning is to look together at the Apostle Paul, our expert disciple maker. And Paul is unique in his disciple making because the majority of what we read in the New Testament from Paul is Paul discipling. He's training men for the work of the ministry in the local church. So my message follows Matt's message last night well, but to take this idea of discipleship and it centers more on the raising up of leaders for the local church and strengthening those that we serve. I have two main points to bring to you. No showmanship here, all right? If I get a bunt this morning, I'll be thrilled. So if you're taking notes, there's two main points. Paul's model for discipleship and Paul's evidence for discipleship. And I wanna dive into this topic this morning. I'm excited for it, i been praying. So um, why don't you join me in prayer and we'll get started. Father, we again thank you for the, for the privilege we have to serve you. And God, I don't ever wanna get past that idea that you've called us into ministry. You not only saved us and, and gave us your spirit to indwell us and, and to teach us and to guide us, you then placed us, most of these people in this room, in your ministry, full-time ministry, and God, what a privilege that is. What an honor that is. And God, I thank you this morning for the IFCA. I thank you for this regional. I thank you for this, the fellowship. And God, it's been even a year since I've been a part of it, and, and, and I forget how much I miss the, the camaraderie of people and the fellowship and the friends and just getting to know and to spend time together. I thank you for my friends. And God, I ask that you would teach us this morning. I pray as we look at the model of Paul's discipleship relationships in just a few areas, I pray that we would be challenged. I pray that as, as pastors, as leaders, as disciples, that we would show care like Paul, that we would be selfless like him, and, and even be thinking ahead and plans for ministry. God, may we serve you well. May we see even the evidence of what Paul did and what you allowed him to do in ministry. We would be encouraged in that. And I, I began our time on Monday praying that we would be changed. And I, I hope that's true. Through the power of your word and through the preaching of your word and worship together that we will leave this regional different than when we came. And may we give you the honor and glory for it all. For I ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians 4, and I'm going to jump around a few passages. So have your Bibles ready. Have the sword drill going on this morning. Ephesians 4 gives us some blueprints of what our job is as pastors. A very familiar passage, you should know this by now, Ephesians 4, verse 11, Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, and he says to them, and he gave some apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. One of our jobs and a main one in ministry as pastors is to equip the church to do the work of the ministry, to to build each other up in maturity. This is a high calling, and this was displayed by Paul in his writing instructing the churches that he ministered to. And one great litmus test for pastors is how much joy does he take in the ministry of others in his church family? Are we thrilled to see that when we are building up those that we're training? You will know, think of this in regards to parenting. I have four young girls in my house, all girls, lots of pink. And they're running around, and it's important for my girls to be dressed every day and to do so modestly. This is important, right? We don't want them to leave with, without clothes on. But it's even more important in the long run for them to learn how to dress themselves, It would be quite embarrassing for my girls to go to college and have mom and dad to come by and help them get dressed. And now as parents of small children, there's a few of us here, we do countless things for our kids, but we're always on the lookout for what we can teach them to do for themselves. We're we're thrilled when our kids get it, right? I'm thrilled when my kids learn how to dress themselves and they do it appropriately, And I'm thrilled that my kids learn how to tie their shoes. It brings me joy to learn that they have successfully learned a new skill and put it into practice. And this should be the same for us as pastors. When we labor through teaching and preaching, our people get it, and it brings joy. It should bring us joy when our people not only get it and understand it, but they're doing it. They display it. And so that's what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 4, and our aim is to disciple people and in our ministries, to do the work of the ministry, to build up the maturity of the body of Christ. And so what I want to do here is walk through some ways in which Paul models for us in the church and how we should do discipleship. And I know there's there's so many. I, I had to really narrow it down. I guess from last night I could have chose nine more, but I didn't. I have three different ways he models for us. And I recognize that I'm speaking to pastors, so I focus my attention to how this hits us as, as a pastor, a ministry leader. Uh, you should have all received a copy of Mark Dever's book, and that was our gift from our church family to you. If you haven't received it, let me know. We have some, we have a couple additional copies, but it's a book in discipleship, and, and Mark Dever is one of those guys that I've met just a few times, but from afar, I've learned so much from him and his ministry. I appreciate so much Mark Dever's ministry and how, and how he desires to disciple men for ministry. He's constantly around young men, constantly wanting to pour himself into young men. And uh, the last section of that book, I want to draw your attention, if you haven't already, the conclusion is really worth the the entire book. It really is. And it's not written by Mark. It's written by one of his elders. And and, and the point of it is, how does Mark hand out authority in the local church? And how does he train men? And so Jonathan Lehman, one of his elders, wrote that section about Mark and how he's displayed this in the local church. So I want to make sure you take note of that. I know a few people have already started reading. It. I've seen you do it. So it's a great book. You'll enjoy it, and I'm sure it'll be helpful to you in ministry. But Paul's model of discipleship, back to the point here. Um, what, what was the model of Paul's discipleship? Well, there's a lot there, as I said. The, the first one I want to mention is Paul was caring. Paul was caring in his discipleship. And 1 Thessalonians 2 talks about that. So turn there. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 7 through 12. Actually, let's start at verse 6. Paul writing here, he says, Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you, believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul writing here is displaying for us his care and love for those that he's ministering to, that he was discipling. He says he's, he was gentle among them. And there's so many different um, descriptions there that he had. And he said he, in verse 6, he had the opportunity to wield his authority, but he chose not to. Richard Baxter in his great work, The Reformed Pastor, I mean you've read that. You need to pick up these old books, 350-year-old Puritan book, great book, The Reformed Pastor, he writes this, The whole of our ministry must be carried on in tender love to our people. We must let them see that nothing pleases us but what profits them, and that what does them good does us good, and that nothing troubles us more than their hurt. We must feel toward our people as a father toward his children. Yes, the tenderest love of a mother must not surpass ours. We must even travail in birth till Christ be formed in them." They should see that we care for no outward thing, neither wealth, nor liberty, nor honor, nor life in comparison of their salvation, but could even be content with Moses to have our names blotted out of the book of life. In other words, to be removed from the number of the living rather than they should not be found in the Lamb's book of life. Discipleship is costly. Ministry is costly, and we, we, we care for the people. And as pastors, I'm sure your heart echoes here of what, of what Baxter's writing and when we care about those that we're discipling, those that we're training, we have to show love in ways that maybe are a little different than what they expect. We may just want to stop just at love, but there's, and there's many people in our churches that feel maybe we just, all we should do is love. Love covers all wrongs. But we, do we read only about love from Paul and his letters to the churches? I mean, in Corinth, there was a mess and he spends one chapter on love, the rest, he's dealing with the issues in that church. There needs to be correction. He spends the majority of his time in that book doing that. And for Paul and for us in our ministries, that's loving. That's caring for them. And if we're to jump ahead here in First Thessalonians to chapter three, look there and see the love of Paul as he writes. First Thessalonians three, verses nine and ten. He says, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before God? And so he's pouring out his soul and his joy for them. And verse 10, he says, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, this reads nicely for us in our English versions. Do you know what he's really saying here? I can't wait to see you to address your shortcomings. How do you like that? Hey, Jeff, I feel so overwhelmed for your sake and full of joy of what God is doing. I pray for you all the time. Morning and evening, you're on my heart, you're on my mind. I can't wait to see you face to face, Jeff, to tell you what you're doing wrong. How would you like a letter like that? I I wanna tell you what's missing in your life. Paul's idea is not repairing something, but it's to put in proper condition to, to make it complete, to, to fill in what's missing. And part of discipling someone and caring for them is correcting them to fill in the gaps. And sometimes we avoid this in discipleship because of fear. Not sure what they're gonna do in reaction to that. But in doing that, and that fear and that reaction, we're not preparing whole Christians. There has to be an element of critique in our discipleship, of correction. And our encouragement definitely is empowering and life-giving, so we need to be generous with that. But if we never correct, then we'll miss out in their sanctification. We need to be gracious and precise in our correction. If we want those that we're discipling to grow and bear fruit then we have to come along and pull out the weeds. And we have to occasionally put a stake up so they can stand upright, so they can grow and become like Jesus Christ. Now, a word of warning to us as brothers, to all of us. We work, I know you do, and you, you, you walk with people and you struggle with them out of love and discipleship relationships, those in your congregation. And sometimes they respond by saying that our love is flawed that our love is inadequate, that we, we mess up. We, we, didn't, we didn't follow the right pattern. We didn't say it the right way. You know what I mean, right? Maybe some of you heard that this last week. You've walked with them for months and you come alongside them to correct them, to, to guide them. You see the shortcomings in their life and they don't see this as loving. I see this as hurtful because how you're instructing them or what you're instructing them goes against what they want, what their desire is. But ultimately, brothers, our love for them cannot be rooted in what they think of us. We must do this hard work out of love for Jesus Christ and his love for us and his love for them. And we'll have disappointments in discipleship. And we need to remember that he is the one who purchased them with his blood. And he is the one who ultimately does the changing. And so Paul was caring. Next, Paul was selfless. You know, Paul did not begin his adult life as a humble follower of Jesus, right? The first time we hear about Saul in the book of Acts, we find him as a proud, bigoted Pharisee, a terrorist actually, devastating the church and dragging men and women to prison. What a great guy to select for gospel ministry, right? He would have not made through our first line of interviews for pastor, right, Earl? You know, as you're sitting on a committee thinking, who's our next guy? We're not going to select Saul. God's much different than us. And on the Damascus Road, God changed him. He's now in Christ. And selflessness was one of Paul's characteristics when he ministered. Through his selflessness, you could see the impact that the gospel had on his soul. A self-denying, Christ-obeying, church-serving demeanor lay at the heart of Paul. You can see this throughout his letters to the churches, his selflessness and prayers and love and his willingness to to endure suffering for the cause of Christ. He writes in Romans 1, 8 and 10, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. In 2 Corinthians 2, 4, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. In 2 Corinthians 1, 6, and 7, If we're afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer, Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that you, as you share in your sufferings, you also share in our comfort. And these verses, there's many more, show us the the love and care and the selfless nature of Paul as he ministered. He cared deeply and was willing to be spent on their behalf. He's not focused on himself. He's willing to, to give of himself to train others and frankly to put the spotlight on Christ and not himself. And there's this lurking heart issue that arises when we begin to disciple others for church leadership. Are we willing to let them serve? Are we willing to let them have the spotlight? We must admit it, friends, that it feels good to receive praise from church members for a work well done. And we're taught, right, to continue to give that glory to God for the good things that he does through us but it also takes great humility to intentionally take the spotlight off ourselves and to point it on a guy that we're training. It takes self-forgetfulness, especially when they do it differently than we do. But if we truly desire for the church to grow, our churches need more than us. You know, as pastors, I think we have a tendency to hoard gospel ministry. I mean, we're we're given the title of pastor, so we should be the one doing it, right? Aren't they paying us to do all the teaching, to do all the preaching, do all the evangelism? Isn't this in our job? And sometimes the thought process goes through our head. Well, we're trained. We have years of experience. We can do it faster. And so I'm just going to keep doing it. We, We think we can accomplish more this way. Friends, we have fooled ourselves, and we miss opportunities. It's much better for our churches to struggle through a substandard Sunday school class for a few months or even years, and then later to be fed by a skilled and trained teacher who we've spent time with training. We need to find joy in training others to do this. It will most definitely help the culture of discipling in our churches and ministry if we allow training to happen, if we give up opportunities that we would naturally teach or preach to allow men to do that that we've trained. And I'll say this and maybe make you uncomfortable we need to hold our positions loosely as pastors. God is the one who places there, not ourselves. Even if you're the one that planted the church, God is the one who put you there. And he may someday move you out. I remember saying this to the elders just a few months after I started saying, I'm here, I desire to be here, but who knows when God will raise up someone else that's better fit for this ministry in five years. They're kind of annoyed with me. After the months and belaboring through it, why would you say that? Well, God's the one that does this, not me. I just need to be faithful. And as we see in Paul's heart, he was caring, he was selfless. And the next is Paul was planned. So my first Sunday, Earl was there during my installation service, and I informed church, I don't know if Earl remembers this, I informed the church in my beginning statement that I was their next interim pastor. Every pastor is an interim pastor. At least we should hope that, right? You know, I'm I'm praying that I'm not the last pastor of Edgewood Bible Church. I don't want this ministry to die when I'm done. And I pray that you won't be the last pastor of your church. I pray that God will use me, will, will spend all of my life just pour it out, as Paul says in, in the book of Timothy, until my time on earth is done, and that he'll raise up another man to lead this congregation. And, and Lord willing, I, I hope, I desire to have a part of that training. You know, this is not a new idea. This is what Paul was saying. And we looked at this passage last night. And so I don't need to belabor the point, but look at Second look at Timothy there. Second Timothy 2. Matt read this and mentioned this last night in 2 Timothy 2 2. He says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And in this passage, I see the planning ability of Paul. He wasn't just thinking about himself, he's always seemed to have the churches that he ministered to on his mind. Do you see the four generations that are listed in this verse? Let me read it again. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. He's writing to Timothy. So there's Paul and Timothy, the next guy and the next guy. And trust to faithful men who will also be able to teach others. There's four generations there that Paul mentions. Paul's thinking future. He's focusing the next next relational rung on the chain here. What's, What's next? Who's next? And sometimes we tend to forget about the next generation. We, we tend to forget about the next step out. Because the ministry is so full, and we're busy, that it's daunting even to think of the next step out. We might talk about who will take it over when we're done. Well, we haven't planned on it. We're not working on the next step. And I want my people in the church that I serve to realize that this ministry doesn't depend on Jeff. Lord willing, there'll be another guy after I'm done. And when we start to disciple someone in, in ministry to train someone, we should always be thinking past them, not in a rude way, but the next guy, meaning who, who, who are they going to disciple? And we should be talking about that with them. Who, who are you discipling? As we're discipling them, who are you discipling? You know, I had great joy this last week when a man who I've been discipling for over a year informed me that he's now discipling someone else. It brought joy to me. And he said to me, I kept hearing you tell me that I needed to be doing this. And so I I looked around in church. I came on Sunday and looked around and said, I think I could, and he went to him. A new believer that he could just spend time with. I WAS ACTUALLY INSTRUCTED IN SCHOOL AND BIBLE COLLEGE uh, TO PLACE OURSELVES IN TIMOTHY'S POSITION THAT WE'RE ALWAYS, WE ALWAYS SHOULD IN LIFE AND MINISTRY BEING DISCIPLED BY SOMEONE ELSE, SOMEONE ELSE POURING INTO US WHILE WE DISCIPLE SOMEONE ELSE. THAT SHOULD BE OUR our, our MINDSET AS PASTORS. WE SHOULD ALWAYS BE LOOKING FOR SOMEONE TO POUR INTO US AND WE CAN POUR INTO OTHERS. SO I ASK ALL OF US, HOW MANY GENERATIONS OF CHRISTIANS IS OUR MINISTRY REACHING? Are we the only ones who are able to teach in our church? Are we the only ones who are able to preach in our church? And I've learned in the years that I've spent in ministry that it's natural, it's easy to fly by the seat of our pants and not plan. And when this happens in my own life, it happens isn't because I don't know how to plan or I don't have time to plan. It's mostly because I don't want to plan because I think I'm promised tomorrow. And I'm promised the next day. And I'm promised the next day. And how arrogant is that? Proverbs 27.1, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. When I don't plan, I'm boasting about my ability to do it tomorrow. And it's conceited to think that I know more than God. Even to know that I'll be alive tomorrow. Does anyone know if they'll be alive tomorrow? I don't know this. I'm not promised this. And brother pastor, we're not promised tomorrow. So if we're not promised tomorrow, who are we training today to take over ministry when we leave? And I say this to my staff on a regular basis, just to freak them out. But if you die in a a horrid car accident today, who's ready to take over your ministry? And who will take over your ministry if God takes you home on the way home today? You know, the success of your ministry is what happens when you're gone. But think about that. So what happens when you leave. What, what, what's left? What, what, what's going on? And Paul knew this. This is why he was all about training others through the work of the ministry. He knew that he would not be around forever. He knew that there'd be an end of his ministry. He wanted to see ministry continue after he was gone. So we need to disciple people to be disciple makers. And we're really good at addition. We can add really well, but multiplication is is different. And we need to look at ministry in that way, and multiplication. And we need to find joy there, brothers and sisters, joy when you when your people get it, when your people do it. And we should be planning on giving ministry away to others. You know, is the bar so high in your church that no no men in your church are able to stand before it to teach? We we need to be preparing our people and our churches to hear and to be taught by by amateurs in ministry because in the long run, it'll be better for our churches to not have a one-man show. And I know how crucial preaching and teaching and evangelism is to the life of a local church. But in 10 years' time in church ministry, and you're the only one who regularly shares the gospel, the only one who can teach Sunday school, the only one who can preach, how healthy is your church then? And we need to be conduits of ministry, not cul-de-sacs. We need to give it away, train it, give them opportunities. And, and I know the fear there, you know, when you're, you're training a guy, especially if you're gonna preach and you stick him up there, you're kind of sit back going, what is he gonna say? What am I gonna have to correct next week? You know, there's even ways to do that that heads that off, you know? You say, give me your sermon manuscript before you preach. We're gonna walk through it. We're gonna read through it. Make sure there's no heretical things in there. And then afterwards, walk through it with them. The good, the the things where they need, that's lacking, right? They need to grow in. So I, I pray that we will all, I mean, this is an area where I need to continue to grow as a pastor, that we can plan like, like he did. And so we've seen the, the model for, for discipleship. The second one is, is Paul's evidence. Paul's evidence of discipleship. Have you ever wondered hey, what it would maybe be like in Paul's relationship with someone he discipled? Well, We get a glimpse of that. And I want to end our time this morning by looking at one discipleship relationship that Paul had, and it's found in the book of Philemon. A letter written from Paul to Philemon concerning the, the salvation and return then of Onesimus. And in 25 verses, we can see Paul's love, his relationship, his sacrifice, and his commitment. And so we're gonna walk through that here in just the remaining minutes that we have. So if you haven't already, to to Philemon. Or excuse me, yes, Philemon. first thing that you see here in the first seven verses is Paul reminds Philemon of his love he says Paul a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy our brother to Philemon our beloved fellow worker and Apphia our sister and Archibus our fellow soldier and the church in your house grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints and I pray That the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. And you can see in these first seven verses his love and care for his brother Philemon. And discipleship should flow out of love we have for the other person. We've talked about that. And discipleship most definitely is teaching and training, but it's not just a transfer of information. There needs to be a communication of love for them. And it's easy to jump to the conclusion that they know that you care for them, that you love them, you have their best interests at heart, but it's, it's foolish not to tell them. We should always be prefacing our counsel with a reminder that we care for them. We want the best for them in ministry. And this will hopefully disarm them before you begin and give any counsel. And people always respond better to a loving friend than a hostile aggressor. Because Paul loves Philemon, he prays for him, he says. And I hope this is a pattern of our discipleship relationships. We should be praying for them. And then as Paul does here in verse 4, he lets him know of that. I'm praying for you. And praying for someone is one of the best ways to show them that you care. How often do we pray for those we are discipling? And how often are we telling them? And as we see in verse 7, Philemon seems to have a reputation for love, something that that brought much joy to Paul. And Philemon's love was evident by his outward action to his fellow believers in the church because the hearts of the saints had been refreshed through him. And people were struggling, people were suffering and hurting emotionally, and, and Philemon had refreshed them. Philemon brought troubled people rest and renewal. He was a, a peacemaker. There's a big difference between being a peaceful person and a a peacemaker. Philemon was the latter. Showing love to the saints was a ministry that Philemon was well known for. One commentator said that he refreshed, it's a military term used to describe an army resting after a long march. And this was Philemon. We see this as evidence of Paul's work in his life. He discipled him. The second thing you notice there is Paul doesn't rely on his authority. Look at verse 8 and following. Accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. And I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted for you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, a, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and the Lord. You know, there, realize there are times when we need to teach and be training our disciples and let them know that what we say is under the authority of the Lord because it's in the word. The word's the authority, and we say that. But not always do we need to swing our weight around. And if anyone could have commanded another believer to do something, it would have been the Apostle Paul, right? But he doesn't. He appeals to him as a coworker in the gospel. Martin Luther said of this, Paul empties himself, it's his rights to compel Philemon also to waive his rights. Powerful, isn't it? Paul's not even finished his discipleship with Philemon. You can hear in his words, he's, he's imploring him to show mercy to his new brother Onesimus. Philemon, I have waived my rights over you. Now brother, you do the same with Onesimus. Learn from me. And John Calvin writing about this says, by his example he shows that pastors should endeavor to draw disciples gently rather than to drag them by force. And indeed when by condescending to entreaty he forgoes his right that has far greater power to to obtain his wish than if he issued a command. So do you see it? He's working from the inside out. And you could see the evidence of Paul's relationship to Onesimus in verse 11, he says he's a different man. Philemon was not getting back the same man that had run away. And Paul engages in a play of words. The name Onesimus was common slave name, meaning useful. So Paul says, in effect, useful, formerly was useless, but now is useful. Onesimus was a changed man. He'd been saved by God and trained by Paul. He was changed forever by the power of the gospel, and Paul knows it. Paul also, he's, he's willing to sacrifice here. Look at verse 17. So if you consider me your partner, receive me as you would receive, or receive him, excuse me, as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your own, owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Paul informs Philemon that he's willing to be inconvenienced to help him to be obedient to the Lord. He's he's willing to absorb any debt that Onestus has incurred so that it will help Philemon to do the right thing. And he's showing his commitment to him in this discipleship relationship. He's willing to fix the problem and seeing reconciliation happen. You see it in his words. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Put it on my tab. Right? Put it on my tab. I'll take care of it. I'm faithful in this. Every possible means should be exhausted before a relationship becomes fractured. And that's what Paul is doing. And isn't this such a great picture of what Christ did for us on the cross. Philemon, like God, was the one who was wronged. Onesimus, like us as sinners, stood in need of reconciliation to Philemon. And Paul, he stood as the one who was willing to sacrifice so that it all could happen. And you've heard it before, I'm sure, that never are we more like God than when we forgive. Well, never are we more like Christ than when We pay someone else's debt. And so that reconciliation can happen. And Paul's willingness to suffer the temporal consequences of Onespa's debt gives us a a glimpse of Christ's willingness to suffer the eternal consequences for sin. And Paul displays this again for them and for us. Well, last year, Paul reminds them of his commitment to the relationship. Look at verse 22. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so does Mark and Aristarchus, Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Paul ends his letter by letting him know that he should prepare a guest room for him before he even knows how he'll respond to this letter very presumptuous of you, Paul. He isn't making his relationship contingent upon him taking his counsel regarding this matter. He expects to have a relationship with him after this is over. He is not expecting any fallout from this letter. He's committed to him. He's committed to a gospel partnership. So how do things turn out? Well, we're not sure. There's not any inspired account, or historical accounts. There's some, there are many of, of what happened here. Some historical accounts claim that Philemon set Onesimus free and that Onesimus then became a pastor and, and eventually was a martyr for the faith. I don't know. I'll have to ask Jesus when we get to heaven. I don't think it would have been in the canon of Scripture if it didn't turn out well, but in it we see Paul's love, his desire to, to go even farther with those of his disciples. So men, where do we go from here? And we've had a lot, I believe, a lot to chew on the last few days. And I don't know about you, but I've been challenged by the teaching of my brothers. And I've been praying for you, brothers. I've asked the secretary the last two weeks to keep keep the updated list of those registering. Not because I was worried about numbers, but I wanted the names so I could be praying for you. And for myself in this, that as we sat under God's word being taught, that we would be looking for ways we can grow and change, and that we can be effective in our ministry where God has placed us, that we can be effective in our discipling ministries. So I'm praying that as we leave this, I still have that list. I'm gonna continue to pray for you, that God would use you in the ministries where you're at, and that you'd look to raise up that next generation to serve the Lord wherever he leads them. So I want to thank you. I want to thank you. I know the rest of the men do too for allowing us to serve in this capacity this week. It's been a joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we could come together and we could sit under the preaching of your word. God, I thank you for your faithfulness to us. And I pray that as servants of you, men and women in this room, that we would be faithful to you and, and the ministries that you've given us. God, even as this week is gone, that um, we're thinking of people that we could come alongside to disciple, to train. Help us, God, as we leave this place with good intentions to follow through with those intentions, to, to set up a, a plan of an action, to reach out, to talk, and to begin if we haven't already. Give encouragement. To us as we serve you, may you be honored and glorified in our ministries. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.